0: And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Broadcasting
1: from an aluminum-foiled bunker 1,138 feet below the earth in an undisclosed location, it's the Two True Freaks Freak Files. Tonight, the Freaks present an unedited, uncensored conversation with writer artist Pat Broderick entitled Destiny of the Anunnaki. Turn off your TV and strap yourself in. It's time to get your worldview warped and your eyes opened by The Freak Files.
0: Hello, and welcome to Two True Freaks. I am Scott Gardner, and I am joined, as always, by my best friend, Chris Honeywell. Hello! Hey, how's it going? Good. We are very excited for this episode. This is a special one. This is going to be a who I am really, really looking forward to this one. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to dive straight in. We have with us a man who uh, who really is a legend in comic books and... Uh, Wow, where to begin here? His work includes uh, runs for Marvel Comics on such characters as Captain Marvel, The Micronauts, uh, Alpha Flight, and of course, one of my personal favorites, Doom 2099, which was my personal favorite of the 2099 books. And for DC Comics, he was the co-creator of the Creature Commandos and Weird War Tales. Uh, Also had excellent runs on the Legion of Superheroes, Batman and Detective Comics, Captain Atom, green lantern swamp thing and of course probably the main thing i imagine he gets pestered about the fury of firestorm which was just awesome one of the few dc books that you got me to
1: read back when we were reading you know in the 80s that you were like you gotta read
0: this comic book and it was the art that hooked me into it for sure Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Those are the real highlights, but uh, just an incredible career of uh, just gorgeous, gorgeous art. He's with us tonight to talk about his latest project, and really anything else that strikes his fancy, please welcome to Two True Freaks, Mr. Pat Broderick.
2: Hey guys, how you doing? Thanks for (laughs) coming on tonight.
0: Oh, thank you for coming on. It is our pleasure, believe me. So... I guess right out of the, the gate, um, the big question is, what is your new project, and uh, and where does it come from?
2: <laughs> okay, uh, skip right up to current. Uh, the new <laughs> project, the new project is, uh, uh, it's a series based off the Tenth uh, Planet uh, uh, theory and uh, uh, basically. I've taken the uh, Sumerian tales from the Enuma English and adapted it to comic book format. So uh, what I'm doing is uh, the uh, discovery of our planet and the uh, colonization of it by the Anunnaki from um, Planet Nibiru and the creation of man, according to, as I said, the Sumerian tales of Sumerian lore.
1: And when I was I was on. Um on your page reading the synopsis of it, it sounds like there's a little bit of Adam and Eve mixed in there.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um
1: Is that something you threw in to 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 sort of
2: No, no. Uh, the um the Sumerian creation lore goes but dates back about seven thousand years earlier than the old Testament. Mm-hmm and then the creation of the Old Testament, 7,000 years earlier than uh, Israel itself or uh, Abraham. And it, uh, they, they were meticulously uh, detail-oriented people. They kept uh, records of everyday goings-on, everyday life all of their accounting uh, their harvest and everything i mean they kept meticulous records Now, was funny about the fact that, that here's something that they had just basically invented themselves was writing and obviously couldn't get enough of it they recorded everything that transpired but also in the process they recorded their uh, their religion their creation lore uh, the Anima uh, Elish, the Ten Tablets of Creation, is where we uh, get the story of the of uh, them, uh, the uh, royal house of the Anunnaki, the planet that they come from, its uh, appearance in our solar system, its creation of our planet through their creation lore. It's. Uh, Discovery by them, and the fact that at the time that they discovered our world, their their own world was dying. Now it's incredibly interesting to me that they would uh, refer to their own world dying as a breach in their atmospheric shield, in their shield that protects their planet from both the extreme uh, cold and extreme heat that their planet endures, and that was. 12,000 years ago. So, we're dealing with that now. I mean, we're dealing with problems with our own ozone layer, the depletion of it, what happens when we have a hole in it, how it affects our environment. Mm-hmm. And within this legend, they were dealing with the very same thing themselves. So, they were looking for a, a method of repairing their shield. And in the process, they discovered that gold in its finest form, in its atom, atomic form, was able to sustain itself in their atmosphere and would, would breach their opening and shield the planet. Now, here's another interesting thing about that. Gold can shield anything from radiation.
3: Mm-hmm
2: within our uh, own um, uh, NASA, when, within the uh, the uh, astronaut suits and also in the uh, plating and wiring on the ships. So it's in a tremendous uh, uh, protector of a uh, uh, block of radiation and it's also one of the best conductors of electricity that we've ever discovered. So I find that a unique connection. And then reading further into <laughs> their history. After they discovered our uh, planet, discovered that we did have gold here. They decided to mine the gold. They needed the gold, so they set up bases here on Earth. And the first base they set up was in the Mesopotamian uh, valley, and they called it the Eden, uh, E-D-I-N. So, this is the first reference to Eden and uh within that uh time frame um they uh the anunnaki came here they were approximately 12 feet tall perfect specimens of uh, a perfect human specimen and we are basically derived from them according to this legend So in the process of their mining it, they discovered that they couldn't produce enough gold fast enough so that they, instead of bringing more of the Anunnaki here, they decided to use the help that was available here on this planet, which was a hominoid, and they imprinted on that hominoid their uh, DNA. And through their DNA, they changed, uh, upgraded the hominoid to bring it up to the point where they would be able to instruct it, they would be able to train it. And that hominoid was the first one that they created. They named the Adamu. Right. It was the first reference of Adam. And through uh, Adam and um, further uh, experimentation, they were able to develop what was basically a slave species that would work for them within the mines collecting the gold. And it became also another interesting fact that everything that we base everything on right now in our world is basically on a gold standard.
1: That's that's exactly what I was just thinking. I was like that would probably explain our preoccupation with gold. We really yeah. love gold throughout but history gold, to now. For what reason
2: but for what
1: re- I've often wondered that it's pretty. I have yes. a, my my roommate's a jeweler, and she said, "Well, gold is like the it's great to work with because it's so soft and and malleable and and pretty." But there's a lot of things that are really pretty, you know, that yes. <laughs> that are just as pretty as gold and aren't as valuable.
2: Yeah. So uh, to me, it, all of these hints that were laid out within uh, this creation or the animal relation started uh, basically making connections in my mind, and also it suddenly dawned on me that it was a tremendous resource of story. Uh, The work has been adapted through uh, uh, three different writers, uh, uh, researchers, and the source material is eight, nine thousand years old. So why not take this material and bring it into the comic format and try to illustrate it in the way that I might visualize it and the way I might detect a civilization could establish itself and be the core civilization for a multitude of uh, worldwide civilizations here. And that's basically what I'm attempting to do with uh, uh, Nibiru and the legend of the Anunnaki in in a nutshell.
0: So will this be a straight up adaptation or do you see yourself ever getting to a point where you you've told the tale as it exists and then you you kind of continue it. Comic book style, if you know what I mean, kind of like, say, Star Wars came out, was adapted over six issues, and then they told continuing stories that they made up afterwards. You you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah. There's many areas where it can certainly be led off into other stories. I mean, we're I'm dealing here with uh, the creation of a culture mm-hmm. uh, right a time a time period that basically lasts about 250,000 years. Uh, because uh, according to the way it's structured, I have them coming here 450,000 years ago, and after 250,000 years, they decide that they have to create man, so I have a large time period there in which right. to structure any story here. And as far as, as far as I intend to take it, I, I don't intend to take it that far, <laughs> okay? Right. Well, I, was... <laughs> I have other interests, and my lifespan is too short.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I, I was curious, because there's a lot of, um, in um, well, I, when, when I was a kid, I was a big fan of, uh, um, the Eric Von Daniken books, and, yeah, and then, you know, in the last, in the last couple decades, all of a sudden the internet appeared, so, I was, you know, able to access even more, you know, information on, on all that stuff. But, you know, looking, looking at stuff about, um, and I, and I was familiar with hearing about stuff about the Anunnaki and Nibiru and stuff, but mostly in a modern context, you know, there's, there's all different factions of, uh, there was a, a lot of people who were expecting that it was going to, um, suck our atmosphere off on December 21st that you know and yeah, 2012 right and there's people who um thought that they were you know had intense complicated things involving the reptilian people and and all this and you know there's i was watching videos today of um you know people with their with their telescopes saying well here's here's comes Nibiru right here and and yeah. and all that. And I, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you were working towards that or if you were just gonna do the, the hardcore history of it. Well, we
2: got decades. In a paranoid way, put me under an incredibly intense deadline. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I've already missed December 12th, you know. Right, uh, right. Well, December well, 21st, 2012. So. We still
1: got our atmosphere, too, so I'm yeah, some yeah, adjustments
2: yeah. in the. But are we skating on borrowed time? You know, Uh, perhaps not. Uh, And I'm glad you raised that point about uh, December 21st, 2012, because it was based off the Mayan calendar as the end of their Baktun. Mm-hmm. at that end time that the, the world, our world goes through changes at the end of each Baktouan and the beginning of the next existence. And so December 21st, 2012 marked the end of that Baktouan, but it also marked the beginning of another one. Now, did we all wake up December 22nd and go, whew, okay, missed that one? You now, I mean, let's expand our thinking a little bit. hmm What's well, happened since December, as far as nearest flybys of extremely large bodies? I mean, we've had what six of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in that, and most dramatically, the one in Russia was—you yes. know—that that was videotaped and on the news and everything. So that really—and I've noticed in the last, oh, three years. There's been you you hear more talk from the random politician or a scientist or something saying, you know, one of the big problems that we're really going to have to address is, you know, large bodies yeah,
3: uh,
1: yeah. hitting hitting the earth and yeah. that's not you know, that's always been oh you always hear in science class, oh there's a chance that, you know, we could get hit by a big meteor, or we've been hit, you know, wiped out the dinosaurs, and all that, but it's something we think of, you know, it's a random chance it could happen every millennium, or, you know, 100,000 years, or something, but it seems to be more of an issue lately.
2: Well, uh, the Mayans thought of time in a secular fashion. It's a circle. You know, just like that clock, it, you know, time ticks around, but it ticks in a circular way. Now, there's linear time. There's time of, of experience, which begins and proceeds forward, okay? And as long as we continue to live, we continue to experience that type of, of interaction with time and event. Mm-hmm. But when you think of it in a circular fashion, the Mayans weren't talking about time in that fashion they were referring to the uh, progression of the universe now everything 24 hours in a day divided into two halves there's 12 months in a year then there's the, uh, the solar year where the solar system completely makes a circuit then there's the cosmic year where the milky way makes a complete circuit a circle now what if instead of looking for some big and incredible event to happen right at a specific time what if we were coming back into a dangerous area of the cosmos that we had not been in for a hundred and what two hundred and some odd thousand years three hundred thousand years however long the length of the Botswana is So that means we're just knocking on the door of a bad neighborhood right now. Mm -hmm. We're getting ready to go through it, okay? It it has taken many generations to complete that cycle. But since it's circular, since they warned us about this time, since we've seen a minimum of, what, six near-Earth flybys of extremely large asteroids and one impact in Russia, Are we out of the uh, golf ball driving range yet? You know what I'm saying? You know, are we sitting at the other end of the driving range and somebody's using the Oort cloud with uh, something to basically knock these things out of its way, pull it out of its way? Uh, to me, it's you know, it's it's like I said before, it's it's you know, everybody that woke up December you know 22nd thought, oh, well, you know, another another harebrained nut nuts thing. You know, we may not be out of the woods yet, not by any means. And yes, they have been very concerned about it for quite some time. They've been very concerned about it. far longer than the last five years. I've got a bigger question for you. Why are they hiding the sky? Can either of you answer me that?
1: As uh, hiding the sky,
2: as in yeah, yeah, with with the chemtrails. Have you happened to have taken a look at that? Oh, it's, it's constant.
0: I've uh, I've long subscribed to the theory that I've since forgotten where I first heard it posed but I, I remember hearing uh, a while back that uh, the, the the big theory that everybody seemed to latch on to was that they were spreading the chemtrails to, to keep the population stupid and docile and I um, I tend to believe that just from constant everyday.
2: exactly the, of the We have video games that's doing that very well, you know <laughs> no, it's, uh, but it's everyday. They, I mean they say that it's um, the substance consists of barium and a couple of other uh, uh, elements, and the barium is to protect us from solar radiation. Because barium absorbs radiation, and at first I believed that until I saw him spraying at night, and then I asked myself, well, why the heck are they worried about solar radiation on the dark side of the Earth, away from the sun?
3: Because mm-hmm.
2: yeah, the air moves; it doesn't stay there. So I'm sorry I don't accept, you know, the, your explanation of uh, to absorb, you know, radiation. I don't, I I think that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is it spreads an entire blanket out over an entire coastal seaboard, and it blocks a view of the sky. So what are they hiding? I mean, as far as what are they keeping us from seeing, or what are they concerned that we'll see? That's, you know
1: i didn't expect to go to chemtrails it's funny i was just having (laughs) well my roommate is uh is a big studier of uh, zero point energy and stuff like that and he was telling me his his theory of of what chemtrails were was he thought they were putting up chemicals that would react to electromagnetic energy and that um I don't know if it, either of you guys have, I don't know if I've talked to you about it, Scout, or uh, heard of HARP.
0: Oh, yes. Um, yeah. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And
1: that they were using, har- that this was sort of, that they were hanging a sort of, um, you know, some sort of chemical in the air that, that they would then shoot with HARP in order to manipulate weather or to also to
0: stymie people from being able to use. What was the big storm that hit uh, New Orleans there a couple years ago? Because I, I remember hearing harp bandied about quite a little bit after harp that storm. Harp gets bandied about. Well, if you
1: if I mean if you go on the internet, harp gets bandied about every time.
3: <laughs> oh,
0: oh yeah.
1: New York uh, City when it hit New York City, there, there were a lot of talk about that too.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's constantly being branded about. Absolutely. Um, I haven't followed Harp. Uh, I know that it's been uh, suggested as use in uh, uh, controlling weather Mm -hmm. weather for warfare, the ability to shift the um, the jet stream around by its effect on it. Mm -hmm. Basically, if if you're able to shift the jet stream, you're able to change the climate over any geographical area. So is it done to increase rainfall? You know, or is it done to uh create storms that strike other coasts it's probably if if it's designed and applied in that direction then it can be used probably in all of those ways the problem is the psychopath at the other end with the uniform on that's in charge yes. of the program
1: well i was out, out yes absolutely direction. i was yeah. just going to say if it was being used to to make sure all the crops were watered and and everything Man. was nice. Then the, whoever was doing it would be t- promoting <laughs> their wonderful work all the time and saying, "Look what we got! This thing that keeps all the crops watered." I, they don't,
0: I <laughs> don't think they don't it's a far—I don't think it's a far stretch or a fanciful idea at all to imagine that somebody thought this up. As a beneficial thing for mankind, and then someone else got a hold of it and said, uh, "If we can do that, we've got the most powerful weapon we'd ever need." It's
1: a classic. It's a classic story. You hire a bunch of uh, scientists who want to do <laughs> nice things, and then you get a hold of whatever they can, and you can. I mean, that's the thing with any kind of invention that anybody makes: is it depends on what kind of brain is using it as to how that event invention. Yeah, and I mean, I don't I don't care where you stand in the political spectrum, most people at this point don't really trust (laughs) the people in charge to to be working for our benefit all the time, you know. It's just not it's just sort of the nature of
2: the beast in that case. Yeah, well it's it's basically just to keep us working. And then once again, hey, that slave mentality, you know we got to continue working continue feeding to the you know mega corporations and there's governments and there's money and it's the corporations that run the world it's money that run the world money the world yeah money and money power that world. well that's that's the thing about this and um back to the the though, so uh, have you guys been following the uh, twin sons and the um uh, reportings on that uh, on YouTube? No.
1: no. No, tell me more I've, about I've, this. I've, oh. I've heard about a possible twin sun before in my reading of it, but I don't know anything that I can remember really specific of it, but I remember reading about a theory of another another sun.
2: Yeah, um, well, the theory of binary star systems that uh, they've determined mathematically that there's Better than 80 to 84 percent of the known stars out there in the solar system are binaries or more stars within each system. That it, uh, it's an extreme rarity, obviously, and you know the the 15 to 18 percent of those may be single solitary suns. So it's a greater likelihood that our our star has a solar companion. So then there's the binary star or the the twin sun theory. Now, they are uh, referring to uh, Planet X as a potential dwarf star, brown star, as, as a binary twin for our sun. And the brown dwarf star is probably about the size of Jupiter, maybe a little bigger and that uh, it is making its way back into our solar system finally for its uh, ballet with our main star until it returns outward in its arc again so there's been fascinating videos on youtube uh, from around uh, mostly the lower uh, areas lower uh, south of the equator of uh at times uh uh, twins twin suns in the sky now not suns that are of the same size the normal sun that we see every day and then a smaller star and uh well star it's practically the size of a a small moon and that this dark star is not alone, since it is a star it is uh, generating a tremendous amount of gravity and it brings with it a mini solar system basically planets or objects surrounding it in and of itself so that's the basis that the uh uh the theory of nibiru is based on not the fact that nibiru is, is just a planet a 10th planet coming through our solar system but is part of a mini solar system that comes through because in the uh in the legends they refer to nibiru as having uh multiple multiple uh satellites going around it and then the. Uh, uh, creation of the earth when the brew first was captured by our solar system and brought in by our gas giants that it struck a planet between mars and jupiter and smashed that planet um, basically uh, shattered half of it and knocked the remaining uh, uh, shard out of its orbit which settled into a new orbit closer into uh, towards the sun which is the earth today and the other half of that planet that was shattered became the asteroid belt which in the Sumerians refer to as the uh, hammered bracelet Now. How did they even know that there was a hammered bracelet? That there was an asteroid belt out there? How did they know the size and the names of, uh, or the colors of the planets and the numbers of them? Because they certainly didn't have telescopes.
1: I was just going to say I, I'm. I'm pretty sure they weren't uh, making gigantic
3: <laughs>
1: lenses that would be necessary to see all that stuff.
2: So I, I believe that they they make a very good connection that the. Uh, Dark Star theory and the uh, Sumerian creation lore are basically one and the same. That it was the passage of the Dark Star into our system that created uh, our Earth into our, this new position. That created the asteroid belt. That tipped Neptune on its side, uh, flipping it over. That. Uh, Basically, left a lot of debris within the area that became uh, captured moons. They believe Pluto is a captured moon that did not originate there. It's certainly not large enough to be considered a planet. They had to give it a new category. Mm -hmm. Um, So. It was the passage of, the, and according to the Sumerian tales, it was the passage of the Nibiru system that caused the devastating flood. It was within their own tales that they spoke of their own version of Noah. And that was where the Hebrews got the tradition of Noah and the ark and uh, adapted it into their writings later on. So to me it was pretty I'm getting all these visualizations that it's just pure sci-fi in my head
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, of how this would look over the horizon and damn it guys I just had to draw it You know, I just had to draw it
1: well speaking of that the the artwork that uh, all the preview artwork I've seen of it is
0: gorgeous okay. I'm really looking forward to reading it I uh The first time I I took a look at it, the first thing that came to my mind was, I believe it was D.C. back in, I think it was the, the early to mid 70s, back when they were doing the large oversized books, you know, like like all new collector's edition and that sort of thing. They adapted the Bible. And that's kind of the first thing I thought of when I when I saw your work on this is it really reminded me of that I, and is that too far a stretch?
2: Um, well, actually it's 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 a, it's a far stretch and that it's not an adaptation of the Bible at all. It's not too uh, too far of a stretch in making a connection now whether this connection offends people down the road it's it's potential that that, you know there's a potentiality that it can but according to these tablets i mean when the anunnaki came here and they settled here and they lived with us they referred to them as their their gods that their gods lived amongst them and taught them and educated them well these guys also partied they got pissed off They fought. They fought over land. They lusted. They ran around and had sex as much as they wanted. So they were humans. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, they taught us everything. Right. Okay. And we are their children according to their writing. So we have within us traits that, you know, would lean in that direction. But they're... uh, their hierarchy is based off of uh, houses, families, family names. You know, leading families, uh, royal houses. Uh, that's where we get the, royal, the term "royal bloodline" from. The royal houses there are were based uh, and structured exactly the way we structured ours here. Yeah,
1: uh, and- golden bloodlines are two things that we really have a focus on yeah yeah absolutely and they taught
2: us to fight <laughs> okay. yeah and so fighting they Taught us war yeah they taught us war you know um so are you know would, are these are these guys uh no they have a they have a a, a definitive lifespan but their lifespan is much longer than ours uh, we measure our lifespan by our connection to our planet right here, okay, terra firma. One orbit around our sun is one year to us for our lifespan. One orbit for them, for their solar system, around our solar system, is approximately 36 to 39,000 years. So if that's one year, then if we live to be 120 they're living to be 380 490,000 years
1: Hmm. not a bad stretch not a bad run (laughs) Yeah,
2: but from our point of view that's a damn long time it's a long
1: time I don't think I'd want to live that long to tell you the truth
2: even even they refer to a deity that they worship and well they refer to that deity as a great creator of all so in that respect, potential that they they may know a little more about it than what we know about it. Um, yeah, so there's a difference in Lord and there's a difference in the Great Creator of all. You know, a Lord is well, by ancient uh, medieval standards. What would a Lord be? You know, just uh, someone of higher ranking of connected bloodline. Right.
1: right, could be there's could be a lot of lords.
2: Exactly, it was a title placed upon people. So when they referred to their lords and their gods, they were referring to in their minds their god, in their minds their lord. Uh, but if they had a the concept that these were the ones that were responsible for the creation of everything no i don't even think they conceived that at that time us you know at that time so 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 in this it it, it leads into a, a a huge struggle for control within this one family i
1: was i was going to say so in this storyline we're, we're going to get to see a lot of family feuding and intrigue and and war and yeah. and yeah. sex and
2: yeah it it, it becomes confused because The hierarchy is set up that the firstborn royal blood child inherits the throne of the father. Now, if the child is not born of royal blood, if they're firstborn, they're not allowed to inherit it. It has to be a union of royal blood. So there's half-brothers half-sisters that are involved uh, by concubines who are not of royal bloodline by the emperors that uh, rule over on uh, the bureau. it's these children and their um, need for their own time and their own place their own rule that create the conflict within the story Uh, It starts out as the the two children of Anu, who is the emperor of uh, Nibiru, are sent to Earth to verify the claim by Awalu, who was the previous emperor of Nibiru, who Anu had overthrown. Awalu was not of royal bloodline. He was a usurper. He overthrew the previous emperor and took control and in order to prevent a civil war and to concentrate on the need to restore the planet's uh, atmospheric covering they decided to allow allow Alalu to remain emperor but they appointed a royal prince Anu as his second and he was the uh, and it was the union of their two children together, Anu of Royal Bloodline and then Alalu and his children, that would bring the royal blood back into the bloodline and control of Nibiru through their uh, ruling house. So when Anu had defeated Alalu, Alalu escaped Nibiru and discovered earth and came here not to settle but to plan his return his second round you know rocky too. he wasn't giving up <laughs> that easy and during that time it was when he discovered the gold here and used that position as a position of strength to try to regain power that he was the one who was going to save the home planet and not the uh, not any who had just disposed him deposed him so Anu sends his two children, Anil and Inki, and, um, to Earth to verify the uh, claims made by Anamu and to set up a mining outpost. So basically, the uh, power structure was divided from Anu between his two sons, Anil and Inki, and that struggle right there. Uh, the, the conflict between those three, Anu, Enki, and Oalu, sets the stage for uh, <coughs> uh, it sets the stage for Anu to come back and to uh, re, uh, to exert final control over both Earth and the and set his children up. And then his children's children are the ones who began all the trouble, all right? his children's children, wanting empires of their own uh, here, uh, set up conflicts that eventually led to t- uh, tremendous wars between these civilizations and the eventual destruction of the civilization of uh, Samaria. And then they basically leave Earth at that time after the destruction of Samaria.
1: Now, is this your first writing Project full.
2: Written uh, comic. First, yeah, well, it's my first single one. I've I've co-plotted with a lot of writers over the years. But because
1: this is a humdinger of a story. Yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated. <laughs> well, I, I was uh, just I was just like, wow, that's a that's a big complex story to.
2: The best part about it is the the uh, source material. The Sumerian tablets are so detailed that it's a matter of reading the tablets, and reinterpreting, uh, paraphrasing it into basically a more modern story.
1: To a story, yeah. It, you
2: know, it's very hard to take things that are written almost in a biblical rhyme format and then convert it. Cool. And that's what this process is.
1: Well, it's it's interesting because as, as you were telling the story, it was reminding me of probably where other authors have gotten little pieces of this. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, and it's turned up in another thing. There was a – and it wasn't um, – maybe it was Battlefield Earth. It wasn't Battlefield Earth. It was another L. Ron Hubbard 10-book, you know, sprawling epic right. of that had um, – and Battlefield Earth to a lesser extent with the, with the horrible movie, but – you know, yeah. with with an alien race coming to mine Earth and using the people of Earth as slaves in some some ways, uh, Prometheus more more recently really had the ancient astronaut myth story. Yeah. You yeah. know, all the way through it. Yeah,
2: no, it's um, well, the ancient astronaut myth and the. Um... The connection that you made with uh, Battlefield Earth was uh, a pretty good one, because keep in mind that these tablets were first discovered back in 1936, mm-hmm. um, uh, and at that time, uh, they were doing the interpretations. and they already had a grasp on the hebrew language and the uh, akkadian language and so the akkadian language to the sumerian language the akkadian was a more advanced form of sumerian script of, of, of writing so they had the ability to do the interpretations now there have been people that have of course argued over um years over the interpretations of specific words and specific mm-hmm. But the story, in in its whole, they have not really argued over. You know, uh, some said that Nibiru is not uh, a planet, a planet of crossing, but is actually the brightest star in the night sky. It's referring to a bright star. So it brings into the uh, uh, serious question, and um, no pun intended there. Our mm-hmm. serious. <laughs> So, and then there's the uh, the dog star, and how that information was uh, attained and incorporated into the uh, tribal lore uh, lore of the African people. Uh, so there's a lot there's a lot of many like small woven connections here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, people have been pulling from for quite a bit of time. You know, uh, it's, it's hard to basically sit there and try to uh, conceive of something totally and uniquely uh, original as a story when your entire life, you're fascinated by the stories that you read, the research that you do, you know. So... You, you, it, it's not a far stretch to say one can take from the uh, Sumerian legend lore and looking at these sculptures, the photographs of the uh, release on the temples. And I look at it and I go, those guys were wearing dreadlocks. They were wearing braids. Now, I mean, to me, that's how I interpret it when I see their uh, hair stuff and their, their designs. So then it's like, okay, this would be neat. Now, what if we had a giant uh, race of uh, giant alien beings with dreadlocks? Suddenly, we're into the O'Ron Hubbard Battlefield Earth look. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to make a connection across. But also, we had to sit there and, and try to decide what... what would be the inspiration for a variety of cultures of around the world that would take their uh, visual inspiration for their clothing and their jewelry from. You know, because they basically, they saw it and they copied it, and then through time they adapted their uh, replicas of the things that they saw. So in my mind's like, okay, we can go with dreadlocks, we can go with beads. We can go with very colorful uh, outfits in the beginning, because when they came here, they brought a lot of stuff with them, and there were supply ships that would come back and forth, but they also had to make do with the materials at hand, you know, so did these uh, ancient astronauts say, next shuttle, send a tailor down here, because, man, our clothes are looking like shit, we need them repaired, you know. So if they didn't, I mean, during that process, it's like, okay, you've got to take somebody and appoint them in charge of clothing. So then the the clothing becomes very basic. It goes from very tailored, um, modern-looking or futuristic-looking to basically sheets that become draped and become wrapped around you. Like a toga. Yeah. Like toga Yeah, because I mean they didn't they didn't think about packing a sewing machine when they had to pack food and supplies. You know what I'm saying? There were things that were necessary to go on the expedition. That wasn't thought about at the beginning. So here you have clothing design that goes from advanced to a more basic a uh, cut look over a period of time to show a progression of time. So what you, what might appear to be a regression in styles is really the natural progression of how they adapt to our environment and what they have. Then we take the uh, the hairstyles and the clothing, and it's very easy to adapt uh, to uh, adapt the braided look for hairstyles across the Egyptian culture across the uh, South American culture Mm -hmm. into the Middle East, I mean, it became a very common hairstyle. So, okay, now we can adapt that into the storyline and make a connection that is plausible. And that's what I like doing with this stuff, is trying to make it plausible. And I'm not trying to sit here and prove, yes, it's an absolute fact. If all I do is you know, put a smile on the, the reader's face and make him wonder, then I've done my job. That's, that's, that's the way I look at it. So for me, artistically, it's a unique challenge in the fact that I have to develop a style and look for these guys. Well, The beginning doesn't look like anything at all on any of the wall relief, but how their uh, appearances will develop over time to become that look
1: my background is in film and I never have envied uh, people who had to do comic books especially when they were writing and drawing it and from what you were describing there I'm thinking to myself oh my god you have to be not only do you have to you know write it be the director you have to do the costume design and the the, the research involved in that you know and it's basically you have to take on all the jobs you would see in the end of uh, the credits for a film to do this. And man, I don't envy it with this, especially when you're covering 250,000 years.
2: Oh, well, but that, that, that's what the concept artist does in the film industry, though, doesn't it?
1: Right, right. But, but yeah. that's you, too. You're, you're all of it in,
2: the, in this. Well, that's what we are in comics. You know, a lot of times... And I went through this, too. You know, I got into comics because I loved comics. I got into comics because I wanted to grow up one day and draw Spider-Man. Big geek fanboy. Okay. That's (laughs) why I got into comics. Fell in love with comics when I was about eight years old. Loved them ever since. (laughs) Started drawing uh, superheroes, little doodles and sketches, around eight years old. And have for the rest of my life since then. So, in the process of attaining that uh, childhood fantasy dream and becoming a comic book artist then we get stuck into these basically, uh, these creative uh, commercial ruts it's like, mm-hmm. okay I'm drawing Spider-Man, what does Spider-Man look like, that's already been decided for me, what does you know the Daily Bugle look like, that's already been decided for me, it's great, all I gotta do is find the back issues and the proper reference and I can do my job same thing with Superman, and no matter any existing series that you take over, unless you had the opportunity to start it, and it's a brand new character, you have a mountain of of reference of previously done issues. When you step out of that comfort zone into an area that no one's drawn before, then it does all fall on your shoulders. Then you start have to uh, have to start deciding how does the architecture look? But not only how does it look, how does it work? I did a stint as a uh, concept uh, designer, and believe me, when you're sitting there, you have to, when you're drawing a building, an exterior, you have to know how, how the inside works, how it's structured, because if you're doing a concept design, whether it's for a movie or a game, Somebody's going to walk through that structure. Mm -hmm. So the inside has to work just as well as the outside, and it has to make sense. It has to connect up and support the outside structure, and I don't mean structural support. If there's windows there, there's got to be a room there. If there's a room there and it's three flights up, then there's got to be staircases attaining those floors so that you can get to those rooms, and then that creates interesting... uh, visualizations to the interior of the building and what did they support these structures with they supported them with columns so these columns had to be placed structurally sound and also aesthetically pleasing and it creates opportunities for interesting nooks and turns so once you start dissecting a structure that way then you really are beginning to learn how that structure works and functions that's what we do here within comics a lot of uh, a lot of artists have taken the time to do orthographic perspective views of rooms to show you know this is this is the room this is how you get through it you know this is the front door this is the back door and these are the connecting rooms this is where the bed is so that you know you know so that you're not always guessing you know, you can... It's like, where did I put that dresser in that, the last time I drew this bedroom? You know, and I can't remember. That. I put it on.
1: Plus, the there's a million fanboys watching that. to make sure you get it right. Today. Right. Oh, yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah, and they will always point that out. Of course, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, it's those are the letters you're going to read or those are the questions that you're going to be uh, uh, faced with at a convention table. You know, so it's... And also... If you become a, a uh, sequential artist, to me, I can't see how you wouldn't want to know that. You know, because you really, to know your craft, you really have to know how to apply it and apply it to the problems. Uh, these are the problems that pop up you now uh, fashion, scene design, architectural design. Uh, if you're drawing a city there's got to be some it has to make some kind of sense as far as the topographical layout of the blocks and the buildings and everything and heaven forbid if you're drawing a city that's you know is established and somebody can go
1: there it's already there yeah you didn't
2: get that right you know so it's 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 what it's about and doing this for me, what I've liked like when I uh, was approached and then took on doing 2099 was the fact that it hadn't been done before. You know, There was no previously existing issues of that time period that we could fall back on and utilize. Uh,
0: it's funny you mention that, because that's exactly what I was, uh, was wondering if that's what you were referring to when you were talking about creating a, a visual world. And I was thinking to myself, didn't you pretty much have to create that one from scratch? I mean, Doom had a had a basic look in the 20th century, but uh, largely you just took the basic outline of that and ran in a whole new direction. That's one of the things I always loved about that book.
2: Yeah, with the the way we, I was fortunate enough to be given a character who was going to be based in Europe, you know, so looking at Europe and applying the uh, the uh, factual aspect that there are buildings there already a thousand years old and still standing there's a strong likelihood that some of this will still be standing in 2099 so it allowed me to incorporate existing structures then with uh, like a retro modern futuristic look which I've always been in love with and it allowed me to create that type of of urban environment for Europe, for there. Leonardo's uh, Spider-Man 2099 took place here in the United States, so the look he designed for uh, Miguel in that series, in my mind, became very uh, indicative of the difference of New York City or Chicago to say, you know, Paris or Frankfurt. Of, of how it will look mm-hmm. and I thought that's what was unique about the the series in and of itself it was part of it couldn't help but happen that way with the uh, variety of, of creative people that were on it so it allowed them to create different sections, different uh, uh, sections of, of urban development all over the world that would have a unique look. And would create a, a greater sense of it being a, a, a true world, a true time period. Just nothing that was encompassed within just Gotham City or Metropolis or you know then New York. You know, it, it gave it a, a wider uh, visualization of how everything could look. That's and that's what I liked about it. That in fact, that I also got to draw Doctor Doom. I loved that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I have to go back and read that because that was that was towards the tail end of the time period where I
0: pretty much tapped out of Marvel and DC Comics. <laughs> it's fantastic. It, it, it's, uh, that was one of my favorite uh, comics from that time period and definitely my favorite of the uh, 2099 series. You know, the, you, the cover that you did for uh, for Issue 1 where Doom was on the precipice with the lightning strike, there was a T-shirt released to that that I owned back then that I wore till it pretty much just fell apart I loved that thing I always wanted much, a
2: poster of that how much did you pay for the t-shirt?
0: oh gosh I have no idea probably 15, 20 bucks back then I imagine
2: well that's what a coincidence because that's about the same amount they paid me for the licensing you so, <laughs> there you go there you go
0: was there ever a poster of that image that you know of?
2: no no, the only poster that I'm aware of, uh, there were insert posters that were done at um, right. yeah. the end of the, uh, the series. But uh, I, I did one poster for the 2099 line uh, that, uh, uh, let me see, I think John, well, I know John Beatty uh, inked it. I'm, I'm trying to think who the colorist was that said uh,
0: was that the one that kind of had like Doom in the background, like big and large, kind of like Darth Vader and then all the other characters of the series, basically?
2: Yeah, yeah. A, a montage, a movie poster design. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot about that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And uh, I believe that was the only poster they did for me. Keep in mind that the, uh, the line didn't last that long, you know. I was fortunate enough to get about 36 issues out before I moved off of the uh, the line of books, and I don't think it uh, it lasted.
0: No, I was actually going to ask you what you ten th- issues after that, yeah. at
2: the most,
0: you know. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you felt about that. I think it's a real testament to the the power. Of your artwork that you brought to that series, that as soon as you left, that book tanked hard. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it did. But the, the, damn, guys, uh, also the whole industry was tanking hard. all That's true.
1: Though. Right. Yeah. I was just gonna say that was kind of the tanking hard time period.
2: Yeah. 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 Uh, the the implosion that happened back in '96 and it lasted for. Uh, What three years, four years before they expanded it, it it cut hard and deep. You know there were a lot of titles, and because of that, a lot of creative people that were um, put out of work. Some of of a small handful temporarily, and the large majority permanently. You know, so it was. I would like to say, yeah, it was cool, you know, like they kicked me off the book and then five issues it died, man, but that would be, you know, like sour, you know, I would love to see the series continue on. And actually, in, in retrospect, when John Moore left, I should have left on the same issue so they could have gotten an like, entirely new creative team and had time to plan for a creative team and, you know, search um, but with the way that they removed me from the book, didn't give them a lot of time to plan a a uh, committed creative replacement for the series. Let me put it that way. Yeah.
3: Mm.
2: They had a couple of fill-in artists before they got a uh, a regular penciler, and it didn't last too long after that. No. Yeah. But I'd yeah. like to say it was the, the fans' reactions to the direction that the new writer was taking it into. Because, but they canceled the entire line. So,
0: you know. Well, I know for uh, for that particular title, for me, it was all about the art. and, and once you left. Um I just I really had no interest. I forget who became the the quote unquote regular artist after that because like I said, it really didn't last at all, but his his style, not only was it a complete departure from yours, yeah. but I felt it was a complete departure from what the character was even about. It, it had a very almost uh, like i it was a style that I think would work really good for say, Doctor Strange, or like a mystical character, but not this techno character, and, and it just seemed a very odd choice to well, me. Doom was like techno, but he was also sort of
1: had that based in the in the past, you know. He had that
3: right.
1: Teutonic yeah. dictator, you know, right. sort of thing going with him too.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... John planned up a very good first year uh, on the, the first 12-issue storyline, and then did remarkably well with, I guess it was probably the next eight issues. Uh, his writing was, is is excellent, and to work with him as an artist, it was inspiring getting his scripts in because they were fun reads and i enjoyed watching the direction he was taking the character in um, he had time to plan that's what i'm getting that guy so then when he left and they brought in warren ellis warren had his plans and then when i left you know bringing in uh, the next series of pencilers yeah, you have to uh, partner up with your writer, uh, and you have to be uh, committed um, and inspired by the project. You know, so I'm not saying in a uh, criticism way that the artists weren't inspired by the writing that they were doing, but if they weren't planning on staying on the series for that long then that affects how much um, mental commitment one gives, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Right. I, was, yeah. I, I was committed to staying with the book, hopefully, for three to five years. It seems to be like the ceiling that I run into. Uh, I can, I've stayed on most of my long-running titles for two years, three years, three and a half years. And I was trying to hit, uh, with one series, a a five-year mark. I would have liked to have gotten five years' worth of work under my belt on it as a body of work. And I felt with Doom, it was uh, interesting enough, a character, uh, potential for uh, unique story uh, lines and conflicts that were set up and, you know, the resolution of these conflicts with Doom involved more interesting I've always wanted to do a series from a villain's point of view not the superhero's point of view but from the villains point of view I always thought that that would make a very good series
1: villains always have are more are juicier you know yeah. and it's always a challenge to to make people somewhat sympathize with them or you know or follow at least follow them through the story
2: yeah yeah and um... I think as uh, entertainment has developed since, you know, 96, 97, we see more of that, you know, more stories uh, structured and based uh, from uh, the villain's point of view, Uh, you know, from The Sopranos to Dexter to uh, Boardwalk Empire. You know, a lot of really good long running shows are based off of some not so really good people. And right following yeah. their exploits.
1: Dexter is a great ex- I was just having a talk with somebody about I haven't watched the last season of Dexter but uh, we were talking about how you know this is this is basically a horrible person a murderer you know no depending on you know I mean he has a rationalization for who he's murdering or whatever but the, the you know there was this tension in the show where there would where you're you're totally rooting for this guy and then you would have moments where you'd realize, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, this guy's a, a psychopath. And then you're rooting, but you still don't want him to get caught. That's quite quite a writing challenge to be able to pull that off
2: yeah, really you're, well. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we do root for Dexter to get the bad guy, but then we have to wince and suffer through what he does to the bad guy after he gets him. Mm-hmm. So we have that positive buildup, and then you have the... The, the reality shock of I'm rooting for a psychopathic serial killer here, you know, <laughs> who has to satisfy his need to murder and has channeled it into I know what I'll do, I'll get the bad guys. I'll, I'll use it to get the bad guys, you know. But what if there's not a bad guy around? Well, there are those episodes too, once in a while. <laughs> You know, and it makes you realize it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, um, I love The Sopranos, loved every episode of it, you know, and did not want to see the series end, but we all knew how it had to end, you know, because there could be no other
3: mm-hmm. for mm-hmm.
1: series like that. And similarly is uh, the Breaking Bad TV show oh, yeah, right now is...
2: Yeah, yeah. Or uh, uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I mean, more comedy, but those guys are sick, you know. And it's just, we root for that.
1: Yeah, well, the, it's, 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 it's sort of a theme in our society. It's, it's sort of, um, and something that comes up a lot in our comics and uh, just in our shows in general is it seems to be that people are having a, a, an easier time with the villains now and having trouble Knowing what to do with good guys,
2: <laughs> the motivation right. for the good guys, for now.
1: the motivations for the good guys. Yeah, I mean, there's been, I mean, for the last three years, we've been talking about, you know, how how, you know, to how to make Superman in, interesting and viable in in modern society, and how people have seem to have a lot of trouble with it and, and stuff like yeah. that.
2: Yeah, no, you're right, and it's it's a different world i mean it's it's easier to to say you know the the motivation for your good guy is well he's all american Mm -hmm. and we fall back on our uh, state of mind into the 50s and the way we thought of life and you know uh, how we interact with each other and we're all patriotic and pulled together for the country and the good of the country and love seeing his cars coming out of the factory and honey's there at home, meet me at the front door. But we've become a bit more tainted than that since then a bit you know, we've, we've, <laughs> yes we've realized that that's just you know a false black and white TV world and that's not reality you know it's reality is more like uh, you know the guy who's uh, in charge of your hedge fund has ripped everybody off and has got that money off from some offshore bank account and he thinks he's so invincible that he'll never get caught you know, I mean, that's more the reality of the world.
0: No, no, do you... But into that into that harsh world, though, doesn't that more emphasize the need well, for I was... that pure version of Superman? That's, that's you know, almost what I was going to You know, the last bastion of something that truly is um, good and pure and and righteous and just for the simple sake of it, that he's not burdened with, with demons and this very dark version that's coming out this year. I I just, I can't stand it. Well, I've, I've always, I,
1: I was thinking, you know, the way our, the, the economy not being so good and stuff, it reminded me of like usually cinema. And, you know, you could, and now that we have more than the movies, now that we have TV and all this media and the internet and stuff like that, when when economic hard times sort of come in and and in times of war um entertainment usually seems to go into the pure escapist mode you know with yeah, yeah. Uh, adventure stories and action stories and and stuff like that but uh i i mean really and and i sort of thought when the avengers came out and made you know, a billion and a half dollars in ten seconds, that that might be the beginning of a new sort of age of a, a more escapist entertain, you know, more of a reaction entertainment but I don't know if that's going to happen, I, I, I don't know if maybe the way people look at things have become you know, they, they look at things in a more sophisticated manner so everybody wants things to be more shaded or or whatever but uh maybe the economy just has to get worse <laughs> in order oh, for yeah. that to happen yeah
2: well i mean we're spoon-fed entertainment and we're, we're fed what we're told to eat and 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 uh, <laughs> in a nutshell, in a sense, you know. I mean, we went through the the era of great westerns, and we went through the era of great war movies, and
3: Mm we went through the
2: era of great crime movies, and then we went through the era of, heaven forbid, bad horror movies that became good horror movies, became, you know, uh, um, series and empires based off of, you know, at the beginning, you know, very low budget, uh, let's get this film shot and get it out at the drive-ins, because they're pretty much basically what we're filming this movie for, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Not a lot of money spent on it, and he knew exactly what, you know, the level, the demographics he was going for, and the release area he was going for. mm mm-hmm. And now uh, we get into the, the zombies started then, and um, we still have zombies today. <laughs>
1: uh, yep. Uh, now very, now zombies today is Brad is the next zombie movie is going to be Brad Pitt, and looks like it has a ten billion dollar CGI budget in it too. You know, so yeah, yeah. from from Night of the Living Dead to yeah, that.
2: So. Basically, when, when somebody brings a, a, a new dish to the party and says, try this, that's when it'll change again, you know. That, uh, that I, I mean, superheroes and the, the superhero genre has been very profitable this go-around for Hollywood, you know, mm-hmm. far more than the very first go-around they've had. It's very popular now. But technology has also changed. The uh, creative medium, creative technology has changed also. So it's enabled them to create believable-looking characters and believable-looking um, environments.
1: Right. They've they've literally been able to bring the comics to life without it looking like a cheesy, you know, like yeah. the '70s Spider-Man.
2: Yeah. yeah sort absolutely. of looked. Um, so you know, what will they be offering us, you know, in 15 years? Uh, I'm sure the media, uh, the technology, will, of course, change tremendously in that amount of time. Uh, but, you know, what will be the core stories that they will be pumping out at that time?
1: Well, in 15 years, you know, and I'm hoping that in 15 years, uh, here, here we are, we're on a podcast, which, you know, Scott and I can just do on our own. And, and uh, we've been talking about your comic that you're doing. I mean this is completely your project you're selling it through your website and hopefully hopefully with with the internet as long as we can keep the internet in 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 the level of control it is that we have now that hopefully that the what is offered to us might have to adapt because we might be able to come up with our own you know or what it's happening people are coming up uh, there's no way Scott and I could ever sell some project to some <laughs> Hollywood where hey uh, we want to talk for two hours a month about um, the Marvel comics Star Wars run you know there's yeah. no way nobody would would ever give us money for that but we're, we're able to do it now for, yeah. for five yeah. years well,
2: and, and that's, uh, that's the thing about technology changing uh, communication changing and methods of delivering goods changing Uh, Mm -hmm. and it started out you know newsstand distribution and that supported magazines uh, and comics for since their inception Uh, then it went from newsstand distribution now this is specifically for magazines and comic books from that to direct distribution you know somebody had a great idea like instead of let's take orders in advance for these books and we will only print to order and we will ship to specific locations that way we can cut down on our overruns so we don't have to absorb that cost into our final budget great idea then a huge network of direct shops built up. I mean, at one time, it was probably well over 5,000 shops in the U.S., and it supported the industry. And then the implosion happened. Plus, you had, at the time, two big players in the field who were supplying the demand. Uh, When it went to direct... That opened up the market for a multitude of players to come into the field, and you had a lot of independents enter the field. But believe me, big business does not like free enterprise, they don't like something that they can't control. You know?
1: Competition, yeah, then, basically. Yeah,
2: yeah well, the, you, you control the market. Right. The whole thing is control the market and squeeze out the maximum amount of profit So control the distribution, hype the market up. Uh, restructure the uh, numbers of the uh, issue numbering back to uh, issue number one and let's give it uh, five variant covers so that the collectible market will run around with the heads twirling uh, which one do I get which one's going to be the most valuable one god I hate this so now I got to buy all five great we got a great bottom line on that first issue look at the profits we've driven so let's try some other gimmick and then it reaches a point where it breaks But at the end of it, you've got three big guys really in control of the mass market. Then the Internet comes along. And the Internet in its current inception is not controlled by any huge uh, individual market. Yeah. You know, yes, uh, uh, Time Warners does own AOL, but they own us you know the AOL server. They don't own the internet yet. But mm-hmm. if they could figure out a way of owning the internet, they would they would do it. If anybody but,
1: could they would've by now, yeah. Yeah.
2: Now we've got, you know, uh, digital comics and for the longest time I did resist doing a digital book. yeah you know, people ask me, Why don't you do a digital comic? And it's like, Well there's quite frankly, there's no money in it. You know, so kept trying to get back into the mainstream and kept having doors closed in my face, and it was something that was very frustrating. So while I'm going through this frustration, the digital market and the internet is building and it's reaching a point where you can get product out there now. Everybody's got a computer, if not two, in their homes. And they can log on to the internet through one server or another and type in, you know, a a website address and go there and entertain themselves. Mm -hmm. So, it's like, I need to reinvent myself, so instead of, I'm not going to do a digital comic now, I am going to do a digital comic. And it dawned on me, shoot, things are in cycles, things go in circles. Now what about this is scary, okay, DC and Marvel, these other guys are distributing their books through Comicsology and a couple of online carriers. I just got uh, my uh, uh, paycheck from DC for uh, the sales of my books of DC Comics through the internet, internet sales. Okay if they recognize this as a viable means of distribution, just like with the drug market and, and the creation of diamond distributors, can we be seeing this happen again with the creation of these websites like Comixology? If the hits, the number of downloads, increase to the point where everybody starts going to it, bet you, I'll bet you a dime of dollars Somebody's going to come up to those guys and go, guys, you've made a great website here. This is a wonderful thing, and we want to make you rich. How much? Mm-hmm. They're going to buy it, you know, mm-hmm. and then they're going to start exerting control over it. Mm-hmm. You
1: know. That's the model.
3: <laughs>
2: well, it has been since day one, yep, yep. and it won't change. So I think right now they're going to find it harder to do with the Internet because you can't squeeze out the other areas of distribution like you could with, you know, the direct sales and you know, with newsstand, you're able to exert a lot of control over that. With the internet, you got to get the people to come there to buy it. And that's a little different.
1: Yeah. it It all happens so fast. It's when I was in college and playing around on the editing deck and thinking about my future and, thinking, you yeah, know, someday I might be lucky to get a movie made and, you know, get it in the theater. But I'm weird, so my movie will be weird, and I'll, you know, get a few thousand people to watch it. And, you know, 15 years later, there's YouTube. And yeah. I, I, I put a movie up once, and a 100,000 people saw it. And I was just like, this is something unprecedented because that's like, so there's TV shows that <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> didn't have a hundred thousand people watching them in the
2: old days and the unique thing about it is it's, it's, you, whether it's a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand that do see it who are those one thousand people and amongst them individually Who might they be that are also involved in the entertainment industry that happen to catch your video
3: Mm -hmm. right and
1: check it out now? Mm -hmm. So well, there's I mean there's Justin Bieber,
0: is the biggest. Ritini oh, starring, Dude, I do not want to release an episode where his name it's is mentioned. Just, yes, oh my god! Well, I'll bleep it out. I'll bleep it out. No, I'm I'm teasing, but, but anyway, <laughs> it's not a he his... got not a subject I expected to come up when no, speaking he, with Pat Broderick. <laughs> he, got, he got his start by uh, no, he, you're right. He he did a video though.
1: on on YouTube, and they said, "Wow, this kid's talented," and now he's worth who knows how much.
2: Yeah. Well, my whole goal is to uh, goals and to round that off. And the bigger thing, I set goals for myself last year. And one, uh, three of them was I was going to be drawing regularly comics again, not just commissions. I wanted to do sequential storytelling again. Two, I was going to have my own website finally up to promote my work to get my work out there and then three was to be uh, to expand my uh, teaching and even though I was getting irritated the other day I had to sit down and go I did accomplish that I did accomplish getting my uh, website up even though I'm still having some problems with it but it's up and it's running
1: now you're talking about the art art of pat broderick.com
2: Yeah, yeah, TheArtOfPubBetter.com. And through that, uh, I have a means that people can now contact me and uh, solicit commissions if they need to, or they can subscribe uh, to Nibiru, which is like the first of a series. I don't plan on it ending with this when I end this. And I originally did not envision this going beyond 12 issues and then seeing how it does uh utilizing this to build interest in my art again in comics and then to build interest in the story, offering it digitally. And then when I reach issue six, uh, my plan is to start a Kickstarter campaign so I can produce a trade paperback from the campaign. Well, I would pitch it for that, that. around issue twelve. And I figure I could get it six months time to do the Kickstarter campaign. And then at that point, I have hard copy, um, um, hard copy uh, product to offer. I have digital product to offer, and hopefully by that time I can start to cut back on my teaching and just concentrate on this full time. Uh, I enjoy the teaching uh, tremendously, but it takes. Uh, it, I'm, I'm poor at time management. I do a lot of things, but I manage my time poorly, you know, and things fall through the cracks all the time, and it's very aggravating. But it's simply because now I do have a variety of different irons in the fires now, and I have to try to keep them all stoked a little bit. They don't have to burn bright red, you know, as long as they're warm and they're, they're you know, uh, producing some embers, we're fine with it. Uh, but, uh I mean, between this uh, that I'm doing now and um, back when I did uh, shoot my last comics work in the industry was for Devil's Due, uh, Micronauts under their banner, I've also produced three different other comic stories, uh, concepts, and... Um, first issues for each of those concepts that I had in my portfolio, I was pitching them out and about. And then come to the realization that a lot of these independents are just as greedy as the big publishers and what they want if they're going to publish your book, you know, they, uh, they, it's no longer a totally creator owned. Um, it is at some companies and then at others it's not. So. I now have an avenue to present that material out there. So I've got stuff that I can uh, supply digitally that should keep people happy for a while. And when the one runs out, I'm able to sidestep into the other. So it gives me something to move on to also.
1: Now I was wondering, have you um, have you sent any um, of the artwork or are these comics off to say Zachariah Sitchins or or any of the people who are really into that that whole lore. I mean, I imagine they would be really interested in it.
2: Um, well, that was the other thing about wanting to get into uh, what I call the the, the uh, fringe uh, aspect of YouTube, you know, and going to the conspiracy side of things because uh, I feel there's a, a, a strong crossover market there that I can tap.
0: <laughs> yes. Definitely. That's
1: where I was headed with that, for sure. I mean, there would be people. I mean, um, I I meant to ask you about. I'm on your Facebook page, and you you put up a picture earlier today, or well, you know, yesterday. It's after midnight, but it was of uh, a giant bikini model.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I know. I know. Twelve foot
1: bikini model.
2: Yeah, I mean, talk about legs to heaven, you know. (laughs) uh, The video was incredible. I'd seen it before, and it was, uh, I I like to search through the stuff a couple times a week to find, you know, videos, articles to post, uh, because my board, I mean, I I collect only people that are, that's the good thing about social boards, is you create it yourself, and you can. Paint it with the subject matter that you're interested in. Correct. I mean that's what social board's are all about.
1: Oh yeah, and every day funny. you'll get an update. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, and I mean my board consists of comic book people and uh, uh, conspiracy uh, nuts, and it's far more entertaining for me oh. to read. Yeah.
1: Well, maybe we're, we might have to trade nuts sometimes. I've got some good. I've <laughs> I've got a good. I um, good good. I, you know, I, 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 yeah, he's a nut, (laughs) um, very fundamentalist Catholic prophecy, you know, he's a prophet of Catholic religion, but he's, he's also into Nibiru, but I think he refers to it as Elanon, and he's got a whole, he's got a whole, um, narrative that he's you know prophesized that that is updated every day i've got my favorite is the woman there's a woman in canada who claims that she's married to brett spiner i think brent spiner actually has had restraining orders taken out on her and um she gave her latest um spiel from um it reminded me of you scott because she was on the treadmill She's on her treadmill, and this whole stream of consciousness about her husband Brett Spiner, and she reads these letters, and he's at war with the Vatican. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. She puts she puts up two or three videos a day.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. I told my wife, I said, you know, if you're getting bored with TV, go to YouTube. And I said, it won't bore you. It will not bore you.
1: It might make you give up TV altogether.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it it becomes addicting. I mean, uh, uh, I had gotten uh, about two years back, two and a half years back, I had lost my nephew, uh, uh, Dan. Danny Riley had passed away. He was only forty-one guy. He passed away of stage four colon cancer, and it really. I mean, when we lose somebody in our family, it's always a loss. Mm
3: -hmm. Uh,
2: Everybody uh, expresses their loss, you know, in their own way. For me this time, it just made me mad. I mean, I got really pissed off because it happened at a time when we were coming into our political season. You know, there was a lot at stake uh, politically-wise with the uh, the direction that the uh, current administration was wanting to go. And then I was actually seeing in my real life the end result of what can happen when there isn't a good, strong, available health insurance uh, uh, program that people can use. And then I asked myself, why, you know, why isn't that, why, I mean, we keep saying that we're the greatest country in the world, but we're not. We keep saying we're the richest country in the world, but we're not, you know, yet, we spend ten times the amount of money in our country on uh, military than the next ten largest nations combined behind us. It's like, this is not right. It's just not right. So I got off into a bit of a political uh, direction with it, and then I was just pissed off. It's like, you know, there's something just... It, it brings back an old question that, that, that I brought up when I was a younger man and, and it goes back to when I was uh, 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 being trained uh, as a uh, Baptist and I call it being trained because that's what we are we are trained and the questions I raised then and the questions I raise now is it's the same thing it's like my Uh, this god or god has got to be bipolar there's just no other explanation (laughs) it has to be a split personality psycho type mentality but we're told no we can't think that way we're told no 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 don't do that you know back when I was a kid would ask questions and I was like why was the God of the Old Testament so pissed off all the time? I mean, it wasn't just a slap on my wrist. It's I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill your wife, I'm going to kill your mother, your children, your animals, everything. I'm just going to kill them all, you know? And then the God of the New Testament, God of love. And so what happened? Did, you know, did he go and get psychological counseling? Did he get help? I mean, what happened here, you know? And the same thing happened to me again when uh, my nephew died. I mean, I was pissed off at God, and I'm still angry you know, about these questions. You know, it's like uh, you can create a wonderful little miracle, but why do you kill hundreds of thousands of babies every day, you know, from typhoid, from disease? You know, this just does not make sense to me. So it drove me to, like, I need to do some research, you know, and what I've been uh, educated in and and taught as a younger man is not giving me the answer. So I, like, let me go back to the beginning. Where did this come from, this system that we were taught? And that's what led me to uh, uh, discovering uh, ancient civilizations about uh, the Civilization of Sumer. And then in the investigating of it, the reading of it, realizing that they basically, the, the, before there were governments, we were controlled through our priests. There were temples. Mm-hmm. Okay. But this temple was nothing more than a meeting place that we were told to go to once a week to pay, to pledge our loyalty to a specific Entity, and suddenly it starts sounding like Sunday school. I mean, don't we do this today? Have we not set aside Sunday? That this is the day we go to church. This is the day we study, you know, the Bible. This is the day we send our children to Sunday school. And suddenly, instead of seeing this as uh, as an educational format, I saw this more as indoctrination that had just been ingrained in us since. Civilization started out this way before there were governments and before there were armies. Mm -hmm. We still have this now.
1: And then it creates a pattern.
2: Yeah, a a pattern, and look at how powerful the churches are. So it's like, well, let me dig deeper into this stuff. And so suddenly I come across tales of the uh, Anunnaki gods of Noah, of the flood, of the creation of Adam and Eve, and here we have one Anunnaki Lord, in hell, who basically says, you never should have created these little intelligent monkeys anyway, so when this flood comes, I want them dead, I want them all dead, wipe them out, get rid of them, and his brother is telling him, mm, no. <laughs> no, I mean, this, this is my creation. I designed these. I created these. I happen to love some of these, you know, and they, we need them. We need them to mine. You idiot, if we kill all our workers, who's going to do the work? <laughs> okay? So I suddenly started getting a little different take on things, and it suddenly just began to dawn on me how this was a, more of an indoctrination process. So if it's indoctrination, then it's education. Is it the education for good or, or, or not? I mean, how we were taught that the, the world was flat, right? We were taught at one time that uh, medical treatment was cutting our arms and bleeding ourselves. You know, I mean, so through the process of discovery, you know, we've advanced in our own knowledge. Yet we still haven't advanced beyond the system. I mean, look at what's you know going on in the world today uh, with the uh, uh, terrorism, you know, and the the battle between religious orders. This stuff has been going on since quite literally, with no pun intended, since the dawn of time.
1: That's why people uh, get so wound up about it. Yeah. It's had a long time to a lot of history to a lot of history there. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and it hasn't just been good history, unfortunately, you know, and and when you look at the the different cultures around the world and you see things and and you're told, you know, they created this 4,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, but they didn't have, we can't do anything, we can't do anything with it right now. I mean, we can't lift these blocks. How did they lift them? The technology required to lay out the grid on the ground. Excuse me.
1: (laughs) You remind me of me.
2: (laughs) Excuse me. Now my voice is going to (laughs) go. My apologies. You'll have your work cut out for you on the editing board. But the the Nazca Lines in South and Peru, okay? We're all fascinated by the Nazca Lines. Take a moment and look at the plateau that they're on. It's not a natural plateau. It was created. That plateau is perfectly flat as if it was the top of that mountain was sheared off. There's no rubble around it from the rest of the mountain. Where did that rubble go? Who had the technology to exactly flatten out the top of a mountain? And at what, 2,000 feet above sea level? Yeah. You know, just the preparation of the canvas alone demands investigation. You know what I mean? So, uh,
0: well, let me sorry, let guys. me ask you um, <coughs> just just the fact that we're still here yeah. and the long lifespan of these these creatures or people, however you would refer to them, does that you know it, it, does that definitely say that somehow they're still involved or if they truly had left and truly abandoned us why leave us behind why why not you know wipe the petri dish clean so to speak
2: well by their time span who's to say that they're not coming towards us with a rag right now
3: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you know, i mean it's, it could potentially be there will they return if they existed, if they came here once, yes, they'll return. Absolutely, they'll return. Are we ready for them? Will we ever be? You know, look at the advance in technology over the last 70 years.
1: Yeah, are we ever ready for anything, you know, really? we You're just right, yeah. well, never ready for almost anything that hits you. You just uh, deal with it. But, yeah, that's always been the the whole thing about the secrecy of of any kind of UFOs or aliens or any kind of government knowledge of it is that you know the public couldn't couldn't handle that, but I'm not so sure of that anymore because it seems like I, concept I, that people can wrap their mind from just from yes, fiction
0: and stuff. Yes and no, but it depends on how you're approaching it. You know, if you're approaching it from say a, a Close Encounters or ET perspective, that they're just other forms of life out there in the in the universe, other you know fuzzy little friendly guys. That's one thing. If suddenly, you know, the knowledge that not only weren't we created, that basically there's an intermediary between us and God, like the single God that's out there that like you know, most religious cultures believe. You know, and then you also introduce the fact that not only is there an intermediary, but this intermediary, when they created us, they specifically created us for the purpose of us being their slaves. I don't think that the average person's ready to handle that knowledge. I just don't. I think that that would be a, a catastrophic mistake to introduce that truth into the general populace. Right. And especially with the knowledge, you know, as Mr. Broderick said that these things could come back to wipe the petri dish clean, you know. Oh,
2: and and that's what I was getting back uh, getting to about the advancement of technology. Look at the rapid advancement of technology that we've sustained over the last 80 years compare it to the advancement of technology from the previous 100 years and the advances that were made at that time period.
1: Oh yeah, and and the advances are getting exponentially faster yeah. as time goes on.
2: But my question is, is it the natural uh, progression of the development of technology or is it being driven? Now, we know a great deal of the technology is being financed. And the advances are being financed and driven through government and private investors. Is there a reason? Other than to make money. Yeah, fear. Well,
1: Well, there's also, with just invention, there's just the human will, you know, need to create, you know, there's a level of some people who are doing things just because they can. You know, they're trying to do whatever they can figure out and say, okay, how can we take this further? But then there's a level beyond beyond those people who are like, how can we use this to further our power or money or or whatever?
2: Well, to me, I've got a thread going that says that we've made these great leaps and advances in technology because we're worried that they are going to come back.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We need to be in a level to defend ourselves when they do.
0: I have long said that 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 was the reason above and beyond why the government doesn't disclose anything that they might know about all this stuff beyond just the idea that people aren't ready to handle it. it you know, from a from a religious or you know just a personal belief standpoint, is the knowledge of. How would it affect society if you knew the world had an expiration date? You know, well, if you
3: knew
2: a, it'll shut down. There'll be a yeah. You know, there'll be an end of the world cell that starts the moment you tell them.
3: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, that's I mean, you know, that's what they expect to happen.
0: I honestly that's what, believe what it, that's, that's why this. Yeah. 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 I mean,
2: why go to work if in ten years the entire social structure is going to be Totally demolished and restructured again.
0: Exactly. You
2: know? yeah. yeah. So you got to keep the wheels moving to keep the money moving,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: the money the money only goes uphill. You know, this is Reaganomics in reverse. It doesn't trickle down. It's flowing uphill right now. Well, it's it, that that one percent that controls all the wealth in the nation.
1: It's. I even look at it as more of even like the point. It's like almost like a point oh 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 one percent It's just, yeah. it's literally like 400 people are really. So, Cause yeah. And I, I think that's part of almost a societal cycle. You know, you have civilizations form sort of out of pragmatic need of people getting together and fulfill the needs of. Of the of people of you know housing and and living but then once they start to succeed you start adding all the bells and whistles and then you know people can use it to to there's certain people who their favorite thing in the world is is power in some way whether it's through money or whatever it's acquiring and money is power these days so it's acquiring money And they acquire a lot of money, which gives them influence, which allows them to acquire more money, which allows them to acquire more influence. And then you reach a sort of teetering point of where, you know, I mean, they got uh, the people who uh, end up drawing all the money towards them. have got to think at some level, how much money can we draw away from everybody else (laughs) before they come knocking at our door? You know, and I think. That's our modern society. Is them trying to maintain some sort of balance so that they don't have, so the townspeople don't take up torches, but at the same time they're kind of greedy, so they can't help <laughs> but keep well, no, taking they, more they, money. So it never they, ends
2: well. They, they, but they, they, you've got to admit, they know the game well and mm-hmm. they manipulate the system well. Mm The first thing you introduce is a Walmart superstore where you can buy everything you need at a very low cost. Okay, so now they don't need as much money. Their cost of living, everyday living, has gone down. So we can pull that money now out of that sector. Why do I mean, the women's movement. Okay, Uh, be independent. Be career-minded. Go out and get a job more women working, more taxes being paid, Yep. more money is changing hands. You know, so you can effectively double the economy by starting a movement. You know, get them out of the house, get them in the workplace, get them producing, producing goods, sell those goods, make money, pay them a few pennies, make them work hard, long hours, you know.
1: That's, that's why I say it now and I've said it a million times, Scott's rolling his eyes right now going, not again, but... One day, we nerds have to take over the world
2: <laughs> and
1: bring about the the world of Gene Roddenberry.
2: <laughs> well, unfortunately, all it's going to take is one solar flare. Even the nerds are going to be out of business.
1: Well, then it'll be back into K. Yeah, then there won't be any internet or anything like that.
2: <laughs> no, no, we'll go back to things called libraries. <laughs> okay. And, yes, well, yes. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Whole thing, I mean, my wife was asking, she's you know, to to explain her the difference between a laptop and you know, an iPad. Uh, And it's like, well, basically, the one was designed to enter the market to save magazines, you know, that's pretty much why it's there. Is the we saw what the internet did to uh, the sales of magazines, and these were powerful companies, but suddenly the uh, sales of the magazines started dropping because people were getting their entertainment news and their political news and everything over the internet mm-hmm. so they needed and the same thing happened with bookstores no sale of books you know uh, the uh, computer games and uh, the fact that it's taken entire generations out of the market that no longer you know truly will go to a bookstore to find a book you know this they computer
1: games are the kids media that's their yeah. that's their passion. Scott has two sons and when I come yeah. to visit Uncle Chris, you know it would be like Uncle Chris, you know in the in and in, in the old days <laughs> it would be Uncle Chris come and look at my frog. And this it was like look at this uh my world I build in Warcraft and it's I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just it's a completely different
2: thing. Well, the the thing is, I mean, I teach in an education system that supplies workers for this industry. And I get students in and I ask them, you know, what are you doing? What what do you do for pleasure? I'm on the computer. I play this game. I play that game. Okay. uh, How many hours a day do you do this? You know? And it's like, eight, Mm ten, two. Sometimes I'll play for 32 hours straight. Mm -hmm. We get these marathon games. It's like, okay. Now, You tell me you want to be an artist. Yeah, I do. I want to learn to draw. I want to draw comics. Okay, where are you going to find the time? You know, because it takes a minimum of two hours a day drawing every day, every day of your life, a minimum of two hours a day. I draw five to ten hours a day every day of my life, and I concentrate on that every day of my life. Where am I going to get eight hours a day to in front of a console and play the game. Now, I did do that once when uh, Doom first came out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, check this out. I'm looking at it, it's like, oh, give me the controller. The next two months went by and I was in front of that TV. I couldn't even concentrate on my work thinking, i got you know, I want to go in there and play Doom because it's addicting. Well, you've got a product, just like the TV that consumes Society for Entertainment has taken it over. And all these students know how to do, all these kids know how to do, is play video games. So, I, you know, it's like, don't. when you go home this weekend, you got to promise me one thing, what's that? You don't turn on your computer. Well, what do I do? <laughs> it's like, What do you do? go to a
1: club, meet a girl, mm. live baby. some life, yeah, that's yeah, b- yeah. if you're going to make art, that's one of the most, that, 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 my first day in film school, my great the best teacher I ever had there, wh- when he was telling us, you know, what to do to prepare to make films, he was like, go on a road trip, you know, go have yeah. fun with your friends and go meet yeah. people and go someplace you've never
2: been before. Well, and and it's the same thing that I tell my students in the creative writing class. Is I said you you have resources available. These resources are your experiences. You know, base your characters off people that you know. Characters that you know. You know, you will find a, a character that will fit the character that you're trying to write in your story. You now, and it makes it easier because you have these experiences, guys. To me. You know, intersocial communication, socializing with people, is not in a chat room. That's not socializing. You know, that's like the uh, an oxymoron for socialization because to socialize, you have to get out and mingle with people. You know, and then the rules fall into play when you do that.
1: Well, if you've ever met anybody that you've that you've met on a chat room in real life and then matched up what you pictured them as and you know how they were in real life you know and I've met many people that I've met over the internet and stuff but like in the podcast where we talk to the you know we we call them up on the phone and talk to them and you get to know them after a while but yeah I've met people on uh, uh, chat rooms who's we're very well spoken and stuff and then you know you run into them in real life and they can barely communicate or make eye contact or or something like that so it yeah it is and and things i of the opinion that things like facebook not all social media but facebook is almost like it's good to have when you're promoting something or if you want to just sort of watch (laughs) but as a means of actual person to person communication it almost works in the opposite direction it ends up causing more fights and and it's almost structured to do that and and at the the same time it's wildly popular
2: the thing is about the the written word unless you're a very good writer you can confuse a person about the intention and tone that they're not hearing (laughs) but when they're reading it they're hearing it
3: Mm -hmm. Okay.
2: And also, you know, chat rooms allows people to lose all sense of social control. Mm-hmm. And they can become irritating bullies and just nag on you, nag on you, nag on you, rag on you.
1: It becomes a bathroom okay. wall.
2: Yeah, almost. well, if this was a real-life scenario and these people were face-to-face, that wouldn't be happening.
3: No, <laughs> no. Okay? <laughs> <laughs>
2: There would be too many people being slapped, it's like, I'm sorry, bam, you know, I've had enough of you, you know, but you can't reach out and do that. Now, you can report a person, okay, so they set that up, but that doesn't stop that person from developing those habits, you know, and it's also kind of scary because, you know, when, when we meet each other, generally we're always, you know, we're putting our best foot forward. Then, as you get to know people, you you get to know them after a while. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get to know these people. They might be really nice in real life, but boy, you get them behind closed doors. I don't want to see what they do to their pets and their children. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like there's no, no. You know, not a good person. Uh, Look, guys, I'm gonna have to run off here.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised we were able to for so long, but. Boy, we appreciate it. And before you go, I'm just, I have one. uh, I was told by the um, irredeemable Shag of the Firestorm Firestorm Fan Podcast to say hi. Oh, well,
0: yeah, Shag's a great guy. He really, yeah, Shag's a good friend of ours. he, He really appreciated doing an interview with you and, uh, you may want to consider a restraining order at some point.
3: Though, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah it's, uh, He's a little bit unhealthy. Speaking of obsession. unstable people on the internet, yeah, but yeah,
2: well, but he's I a great guy. Any unstable people in the entertainment industry? <laughs> They're the ones that generally get things done, you know. So I, I and I myself will not say that i'm a stable personality type at all okay
1: being a stable personality type isn't the one of the best features if you want to be an artist <laughs>
2: no no when you look at the history of us
3: no
1: yeah
2: mm, <laughs> geniuses the best geniuses
1: perks. and artists and wow. inventors and stuff yeah usually have something going wrong
2: in there Yeah, you know, they they did de- they definitely didn't walk to the right of the stage you know <laughs> they definitely were on the left side the right of the stage. <laughs> Now, won't be cutting my ear off. <laughs> That's... Or will I be losing myself, you know, in a haze of opium, nor uh, drink myself to death or die of lead poisoning because I'm drinking out of a leaded glass or a leaded bottle. Uh, but it, uh, it's been tempting. Been tempting. I've been tempted over the years. <laughs> now, Lord knows I've had my time uh, at the end of conventions in the hotel bars enjoying uh, the company of many fans and professionals, knocking back a bathtub full of booze. So.
3: <laughs>
2: Those days are behind me. Look, well, guys, it was great. I did enjoy this.
3: And,
0: thanks. Um, You've been one of our most lively interviews ever. It's yes. been great. Yes, yes. You are welcome back anytime, sir. This has been an absolute delight. And, uh, again, real, pro- real pleasure uh, to meet you at, at uh, MegaCon. Hope to, uh, to see you in person again in the future. But uh, we'd definitely like to have you back on the show anytime you might be interested.
2: No, well, I'd love to. And thanks for the opportunity to uh, promote my product and uh, the opportunity to uh, uh, get out there and chat with you guys and talk about these things. I've enjoyed this evening tremendously.
0: Thank you so much. All
2: right, so We'll catch up with you later. Tonight.
0: All right. We'll go ahead and let you get some sleep. Thanks again All for right. joining us. We'll talk to you soon. All right.
1: Good night. Good night. Good night.
0: You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today anytime you plan to visit amazon.com please be aware that if you use the amazon.com link located on our website www.2truefreaks.libson.com two true freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase there is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this all proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite two true freaks affiliated podcasts rolling and it really helps us out so please Use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. <laughs> visit our website at two Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libson is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at 2 True Freaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook just search for two true freaks and hey you can friend me scott gardner on facebook too my name is spelled f-c-o-t-t-g-a-r-d-n-e-r you can friend me on facebook too if you can find me now available two true freaks t-shirts see our website for details two true freaks is a very proud member of the
1: comics podcast network You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com,
0: where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. Freaks.